On Sunday, April 14th in San Francisco, the first ever Fresh Ed Live event will take place. I will interview Professor Gita Steiner-Kamsi about her new work on educational privatization in front of a live audience. We just released additional free tickets to the event, so please get yours before they run out again. You can sign up for the event at freshedpodcast.com slash live. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash live. Of course, if you can't make it, rest assured, you can come join the Fresh Ed and NORAG teams at Eclipse Kitchen and Bar in the lobby of the CIES Conference Hotel at 6.30 p.m. We look forward to meeting you very soon. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we kick off a mini-series on education and law. Intermittently, over the next eight months or so, we'll be airing a collection of conversations with scholars affiliated with the Education Law Association. These shows will touch on timely legal and policy issues affecting education. For our first show in the Education and Law miniseries, I speak with Julie Mead about her new co-written report with Susanna X for the National Education Policy Center entitled How School Privatization Opens the Door for Discrimination. In our conversation, we touch on a range of issues related to voucher programs and charter schools. Julie reminds listeners that the dictionary definition of discrimination is not the same as the legal definition. Every statute, unlike the Constitution, is changeable and is written by the legislators that created it. Julie Mead is the Associate Dean for Education and Professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. She is a member of the Education Law Association. Julie Mead, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I'd like to start by just talking a little bit about the way in which federal law in the USA protects against discrimination in schools. So first off, what types of discrimination can even exist in schools? Well, schools, of course, are places where human beings are. So any kind of discrimination that you can imagine. So discrimination on the basis of race, on the basis of sex, basis of religion, the basis of uh, gender or gender identity, basis of disability, all of those different kinds of discrimination can and have, and we have a historical backdrop for, in terms of uh, when they have happened in schools. And what have the courts said or ruled about discrimination specifically in schools? Well, I think the the best way to think about that is actually to talk first about the Constitution, which may sound a little old-fashioned perhaps, but the Constitution has in it one of the provisions, of course, is the 14th Amendment, and in the 14th Amendment there is the Equal Protection Clause. And so it's really a, a statement of our collective value that people should be, if they are similarly situated, treated the same and that no person should be singled out for differential treatment based on some status characteristic. And that status characteristic, again, could be you know race, sex, class, all of those different status characteristics. And so the 14th Amendment was the vehicle that was first used when plaintiffs sued in order to get equal protection 
from the government. And so the most famous case, of course, is Brown versus the Board of Education. It wasn't the first case that litigated the issue, but it is the case that is, in fact, the most, most important, arguably, and probably the best well-known. And so these, the issue in Brown versus the Board of Education, as most people know, was whether or not segregated schools were permissible under the Constitution. And the actual provision was the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So is it permissible for a state to sort children on the basis of race when they are putting their public school system together? And of course, the Supreme Court determined that no, there is not an adequate justification for that. One of the things that I always talk to my students about is that discrimination has what you might call a dictionary definition, what people think about. Anytime I'm treating somebody differently, they may call that discrimination. But there's also a legal definition. And so the legal definition of discrimination when we're talking about the 14th Amendment is when the government cannot justify the difference between those people, right? And so here we're talking about the government classifying people, sorting people on the basis of some status characteristic. And it's discriminatory when they cannot justify that difference. Now, if they can justify it, if they can meet the, the legal justification that's required, then by definition, that is not discriminatory. That's a difference, but it's not, a dis- not discriminatory. So that's one thing. So what would be an example of that? Getting a driver's license. So the state, in, in my state, in the state of Wisconsin, sorts people into two categories. The first category are those individuals who are not yet 16, and the second category is those people who are 16 or older. They're treated differently. The folks who are not yet 16 are not able to get a driver's license no matter how well they know the rules of the road or how safely they're able to operate a motor vehicle. Those who are over 16 have to be able to demonstrate that they do know the rules of the road and that they can safely operate a motor vehicle. So there's a difference in treatment there, but we don't call that discriminatory because it's, it's a justifiable difference. Why? Because the goal, of course, is to make sure that our streets and highways are safe for everybody. And we want them to be safe. And in order for them to be safe, we make sure that folks understand the rules of the road and that they are physically able and have sufficient judgment to operate a motor vehicle safely. And if you had unlimited time and unlimited resources as a government, you might say, whoever can do that, doesn't matter who you are, whoever you can do that, demonstrate that you know the rules and can safely operate a motor vehicle, gets a driver's license. And if that were the case and somebody did a study, we'd probably see that there was at least a correlation between age and being able to do those things. We don't have a system with unlimited resources and time, and so the government has sorted us into those two categories, but they can justify that based on their goal. So the means that they used sorting us is rationally related to the goal, having safe highways, and therefore, because that is is related, and the terms of the law rationally related, that is by definition not discriminatory. It's a difference. People are treated differently. And someone who's 14 or 15 might chafe at that difference, but that's not discriminatory. And so then in education, in Brown versus the Board of Education, the means of segregating children by race, the, the 
government was not able to justify the different way they were treating people. Is that that would be the, the legal way of understanding discrimination? Precisely. So when the category and when the government is sorting us by race, the courts, the judicial branch, the Supreme Court requires that the connection between the ends and the means, so the, the goal that we're after and the means being the sort by racial category, has to be a very tight fit. An ends means fit has to be very tight. And there they use a test called strict scrutiny. And what that requires is that the means are necessary and narrowly tailored to the ends, which must be a compelling state interest. So it raises the stakes in order for the state to justify any time they want to sort us by race. So in terms of discrimination, are, are there any other laws beyond the Constitution that are protecting people against discrimination, particularly students? and anyone in schools? So absolutely, we have several federal statutes that protect against discrimination. For example, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act protects against discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin by any entity that receives federal funds. Likewise, Title VII protects all employees from discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. We've got Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, and it applies to, again, entities that receive federal dollars and protects students and staff in educational entities, so both K-12 schools all the way up to colleges and universities, and it protects students and staff from discrimination on the basis of sex. You've got the Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act that protects against the discrimination on the basis of disability. The Americans with, Disabili- with Disabilities Act that also protects on the basis uh, against discrimination on the basis of disability. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which provides funds to states to make sure that they have non-discriminatory practices. And finally, the Educational or Equal Educational Opportunity Act, which requires states and local school districts to ensure that what they're doing is offered on an equal basis without regard to race, color, sex, or national origin. So it seems like there's a lot of different statutes, the 14th Amendment. So there's, in a sense, there's a rich legal foundation to protect against discrimination in schools. I guess one of the things about the American system is that there's so many different types of schools. There are public schools, but then there's also religious schools, private schools. And, you know, I I remember growing up in America and knowing people that were going to, say, an all-girls or an all-boys private school. And so that seems to be a sorting of some sort. So how do these laws impact religious and private schools in America? They do impact them, but differently. And one of the reasons that it's differently is because in some cases they don't apply at all. And in other cases, they apply differently because of the way that the laws were written. So every statute, unlike the Constitution, is changeable and is written by the legislators that created it. So Congress decided, and and in that way, Congress, if you will, defines what is discrimination in those statutes. So it, it defines the scope of the law. It defines 
uh, the exceptions to the law. And so if we back up to the Constitution, the 14th Amendment only applies if there is a state actor or a governmental actor. So a private school is not run by the state, is not run by a governmental actor. So it may sound funny to say, but the Constitution doesn't apply. So again, they can try to live out the value of the 14th Amendment, but they are actually not bound by it because they're not related to the government. The other laws, some of them require that there be a recipient of federal funds. So in that case, you have to check to first to see whether or not the private school is in fact receiving federal funds. If they are, then those laws apply like Title VI, like Title IX, like Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. Those all have that federal funding trigger, if you will. If the private school is not receiving any federal funds, then those laws don't apply to them. And then there are some other laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act or Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which would apply to private schools, but would apply differently than they do to public schools because of the way that they're written. And in some cases, those laws have exceptions, explicit exceptions for religious entities so that they don't apply to religious entities or they apply completely differently to those entities. So what would be an example of that inside of a school, for instance? Okay, Uh, let's take kids with disabilities. So kids with disabilities in a public school are entitled to what we term as a free appropriate public education or FAPE. So they're entitled to a free appropriate public education. And the public school must provide special education and related services if the child needs it. So if the child has a disability and is evaluated and found to have that disability, they have to describe that student's needs and then they have to provide whatever is necessary for them to meet that baseline floor of opportunity that we call a free appropriate public education. A private school under the Americans with Disabilities Act may not simply outright say nobody can come here, so they can't discriminate in that way. But if a child with a disability is in a private school that is not a recipient of federal funds, that private school is only obligated to provide reasonable accommodations or modification to their existing programs that they have right now. And so if they don't have any special education expertise on their staff, they don't have to add it. A public school would have to add it. A private school would not. And the private school then could say to that parent, I'm sorry, we don't have the services your child needs. Your child will have to withdraw. And that's not discrimination by the law. Exactly, exactly. That's not discriminatory because the law says that it's not. The law said that for those schools, they only have to make those reasonable accommodations to existing programs. A very different standard than is than public schools are held to. Right. So the law applies differently depending on which entity we are looking at, public, private, religious. What about, I'd like to just sort of make it maybe a little bit more complex by adding in the issues of vouchers and charter schools. So these are receiving public funds, but privately operated. So, you know, how does the law even begin to apply to to these entities? Well, let's separate them first. And since 
We started by talking about private schools and religious schools. Let's start with voucher programs because it's a bit cleaner, to be honest. Because those schools are, first they have to elect to participate in a state's voucher program if a state has one. The state cannot compel the private school to participate. The private school has to say, yes, I want to participate. Once they decide to participate, then they have to comply with whatever rules their state legislature has enacted that go along with that voucher program. And if the state hasn't, isn't holding them to some different standard than they would have been held to without belonging to the voucher program, then they don't have to do anything different. The laws are no different. So unless the state legislature has said, as a condition of taking these public funds, you have now some new rules you have to comply with, then you know that, that, that's something that the state legislature could do. They could do that. But if they haven't done that, then the private school would have no more obligations participating in a voucher program than they would if they didn't. So they can take the public money, but they're not held to any different standards. Charter schools are a different kind of public school. So a charter school, and again, charter schools vary from state to state to state because they are creatures of the state legislatures that created them. So what is a charter school in Wisconsin is not the same as a charter school in Michigan or Arizona or California, for example. And the charter school is created by a contract, a performance contract between a charter school authorizer and whoever wants to operate the charter school. Now, those who authorize in most states are public entities. So they may be a school district, they may be a state board of education, perhaps a special charter school board that's been created by state statute. They may be a state university. Some states do permit private entities to charter schools, a charity, for example, or a nonprofit, but that depends on the state that you're in. The school itself, though, at least under federal law, is considered a public school if they want to participate in the charter schools. It's under uh, the L, uh, Every Student Succeeds Ad, but there's a, a charter schools program, and that federal charter schools program requires that they be public. So they're a special kind of public school no matter who operates them. So even if the charter itself is given to some private group, not to another public group, the, the, the operator is a private organization of some sort, the school they're operating is a public school. And so in that way, although there have been a few arguments about it, in that way the Constitution applies, as do those other laws. And certainly charter schools are the recipients of federal funds under a whole host of federal funding statutes. And so all of those non-discrimination laws that only apply if the recipient of federal funds would apply to charter schools because they are recipients. So what would all of this mean in terms of discrimination law? Like, are there any examples where issues of discrimination have played out inside charter schools or inside private schools that accept voucher students? You know, how does the discrimination law play out? Well, one of the ways that if we go back to my earlier example with kids with disabilities is that voucher schools aren't serving kids with disabilities as a general rule. Now, some do, 
but there's it's a difference between doing it as a matter of discretion. In other words, they, they have elected to do it versus being mandated to do it. So even when those schools serve kids with disabilities, they tend to be kids with milder disabilities if they're serving them at all. Another example would be children who need special instruction in order to learn English. So kids whose first language is not English. Those kids have to be offered language learning services in a public school. But a private school, would, even if that private school participates in the voucher program, would not have to do that unless the state were to make that a condition of, of taking the voucher funds. So far, that has not happened. <laughs> but it could. In charter schools, even though the non-discrimination laws apply, we have seen fewer kids with special learning needs in those schools. And there's been a lot of, of concern about that. There's been both from the, the government uh, accounting office, the GAO. And there's been concern about that kind of just writ large. How do we make sure that these special kinds of public schools, in fact, do serve the entire public? I should mention there's one other issue that has come up in voucher programs that's of particular concern, and that's related to some religions who have tenets of their religions ar around homosexuality or gender identity, transgenderism, and so forth. And in those situations, we do have a number of reports of private schools participating in voucher programs who don't take LGBTQ kids and who may not even take straight kids if they come from a family where their parents are LGBTQ. And unless the voucher program, the state statute says, no, 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 you can't do that and take the voucher money, then again, there's no law that says they can't do that. I mean, it seems like the that sort of discrimination I, in the sort of dictionary definition of the term, not the legal <laughs> definition of the term, it seems like that's such a big issue, almost in on parallel or in parallel to sort of the issue that Brown versus the Board of Education was trying to resolve so many years ago with race and separating people by race. I mean, this issue of gender identity and gender orientation it seems like this is a big issue. And, and so are you saying that r really it has to come uh, before the Supreme Court and, or, or can states actually change the laws? Like how, how can that issue of discrimination sort of be resolved? Certainly, I think states can take action. And in fact, in the report, we talk about some actions that states can take. And one of the things that my co-author, Suzanne Eckes, and I argue is that, in fact, state legislatures should be much more active in making non-discrimination a condition of accepting that those, those public funds. And they can, they can do that. The issue around who you can say no to, and I think it's, it's interesting that you brought up race at the time of segregation or just post-Brown when there was a lot of resistance to desegregation. At that time, two, two parallels that I want to point out. First, uh, interestingly enough, the very first kinds of voucher programs happened as a way to resist desegregation. So there are some places where a public school district said, okay, we'll just close all our public schools and we'll give everybody a voucher 
knowing that the only private schools only were going to take white kids. And so, you know, we, we, we ended up with segregation anyway. So that's how vouchers started? That is, yeah. Well, I should back up and say there were some programs in uh, rural states, like rural Maine, where they had what's called a town tuitioning program, where they didn't have enough kids, literally enough kids to have a high school, for example. And so they would give a voucher to go to a neighboring school district or a non-religious school because they didn't have enough kids to have their own high school. So other than that, the first foray into vouchers was, in fact, to resist Brown versus the Board of Education. The second parallel that I think you can draw that we again point out in the report is that a number of religious entities resisted desegregation on religious grounds where they said that mixing of the races was in fact a violation of their religious tenets. And eventually the uh, Supreme Court said that that's simply not permissible if you're going to participate in a public benefit. And then over time, of course, we define discrimination as saying, no, you can't do that. as a pro- If you're holding yourself out offering a public accommodation or a public service, you can't do that. And one of the things that we're arguing is that the time may be ripe to have a similar kind of prohibition against uh, private entities that do the same thing. Now, again, we've had, you know, a recent Supreme Court case, if you think about the case around baking a cake, right, where they said it wasn't necessary, but whether or not that happens at the federal level, a state as a condition of taking voucher funds could make that a condition saying, if you're going to take our voucher money, you can't do that. Now, that may mean that some religious schools would have to choose between participating in it or taking the money, but they could make that a condition of taking those those public funds. Are there any states that are currently going down that road? So we cite in the paper an earlier study that Suzanne and I did that looked at all of the voucher statutes. And what we were unfortunately able to conclude was that no state uniformly made non-discrimination a condition of participating in their programs. You have some states, though, that have adopted some provisions that are fairly close. So I'll use Wisconsin. We're, we're really the oldest modern voucher program with the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program that started in 1990. And in the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, the state legislature did two things. One, they said that the school district could, or excuse me, the school, the private school that participates in the voucher program had to accept anybody who applied, regardless of religion, regardless of anything else. They had to take any, anyone who applied, as long as they had space, of course. And if they, if they had more applicants and they had space, then the law requires that they use some kind of random selection procedure so that they can't privilege somebody over somebody else based on a status characteristic. They have to have some random selection. The other thing that Wisconsin did is it said that even if it's a religious school, any student enrolled there by means of a voucher cannot be compelled to participate in a religious ac- activity. Now, you might say, well, why would somebody enroll in a religious school and not participate in a religious activity? I, that's another question. But they couldn't be compelled to do so. And so that combination of those two things provides a kind of a de facto prohibition against uh, discrimination on the basis of religion. What about at the federal level? I mean, with the, you know, Brett Kavanaugh being appointed to the Supreme Court, are you optimistic that 
issues of discrimination in school could come before the court and actually produce a, a ruling that would make the legal definition of discrimination match a little bit more closely the dictionary definition of discrimination. I've studied school law a long time, and one thing I've learned is that it's not a good idea to make any predictions <laughs> about what the Supreme Court's going to do. And my track record on pr predictions is not very good either. So I think I'm going to punt on that one. I do think that it's important that we think about these things as policymakers at all levels in order to come as close to realizing those values that we have encoded in our federal constitution that we're holding our governmental agents to. And I think we want to find ways to get as close to that as possible. And I think, again, we need to look for those locus of control, if you will. So if the control for a charter school program is at the state legislature that created it, that's a, a lever that can be pushed to make a change. Likewise, if a charter school authorizer is the one that gets to decide which school gets the charter and which school does not, or which uh, a proposal does not, then Making sure that those proposals attend to issues of discrimination is something that's within their purview right now, that they can ensure that, in fact, they do that without waiting for the Supreme Court or for Congress to act. Likewise, on a voucher program, you can do the same kinds of things with the state legislature, again, defining what a school must do in order to be eligible to participate in the program at all. We also recommend in the report that Congress needs to take some time to re-examine those non-discrimination statutes. You know, they were all written at a time when we didn't have charters and vouchers. Those weren't a thing. And so no one was contemplating what would this mean if, in fact, public money were providing the tuition in a private school? That was not a consideration. And so one of the things that we recommend is, in fact, that Congress go back and take a look at these laws and think about what changes they want to make, given the new ways that, in fact, public funds are supporting education in various forms and states. An example of that, when they, they, Congress did exactly that, was in the 1990s when charter schools were just beginning. At that time, there was nothing in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that made clear how that particular law would apply to charter schools. And so in 1997, when Congress revised the law, or what we call reauthorized the law, they wrote explicit provisions into the law to make clear that if a state was going to adopt a charter school law, if a state was going to create charter schools in their state, that they had to ensure that, in fact, the kids who went to charter schools had the same level of protection as kids who went to traditional public schools. And so that's part of what we're talking about. We think Congress could go in and revisit those non-discrimination statutes and make clear that when public funds are going to purchase access, if you will, of different kinds, that in fact they have to make sure that those public funds are offered in a way that's non-discriminatory. Uh, it's just such a fascinating angle to the issue of educational privatization. So, Julie Mead, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed talking to you, too.
Julie Mead is the Associate Dean for Education and Professor at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. The co-written brief discussed in today's episode is entitled, How School Privatization Opens the Door for Discrimination. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.